Uh, well, I've just written a biography of Vijayalakshmi Pandit, who I was amazed to discover was considered one of the two greatest women in the world in the 20th century, the other being Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, I think many Indians may know her as, at best, Nehru's sister, uh, and they may know that she played a role at the United Nations. Um, they may know one or two small other things, but for the most part, she has been reduced today to a mere footnote uh, in history. People don't really know all that much about her other than what I just said. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I'm Sandeep Rao, as you possibly know, and I've got a lovely episode lined up for you today. Of course, so much going on in the world. There's conflict, there wars, and normal good stuff. You know what I mean? Scarcity, complexity, egos being bruised. And the sad part is my ego gets bruised. I go to the room and cry. But if Putin's ego or Netehin, I can't even say his name, or someone else's ego gets bruised. or The, the problem of ego and scale, right? If you can't really keep a check of your ego. That needs to be one of the criteria if you're getting into a position of power because a lot of these guys seem to have a lot of intellect, a lot of intelligence, but absolutely no emotional maturity. And suddenly it's like someone does something like, you know, say you have a small dick and that's it. We have a huge missile which looks like a dick being thrown at another country. A bit upsetting overall. Um, anyway, let me, as I said, talk about today's guest because that's what I'm doing nowadays. Uh, before I talk about the guest, of course, I would really appreciate all your support for the podcast. And you know the you know the drill. If you're watching this on YouTube, do subscribe to the Soapy Rao channel, do share the video with people you think of in a good light, and the video with people you think of in a very, very good light. And uh, yeah, like the video. I think it does something to that machine, which is watching the video saying, hey, buddy, someone likes this. Do tell your friends, machine friends. Um, and of course, for all my lovely listening friends, do rate the podcast if the platform you listen to it on allows that. Well, I've got Manu Bhagwan, who's a professor of history and human rights at Hunter College and the Graduate Center at City University, New York. He is joining me today to talk about India's post-independence, our modern history, where we were, what the roadmap was, what it looks like now, where we are, and how we are as a power player on the world map, what certain signs are, are they worrying, are they positive, what the future holds for us, what you and I can do as an Indian in India's context, in the global context, to prepare ourselves for the time that is coming our way. Um, interesting conversation for everyone who lives in this country, also who lives in the world, the present day world, with everything else going on, what role do we have and what power do we have as an individual. Uh, great conversation with Manu. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. And of course, do look out for his new book. It's called Vijay Lakshmi Pandit Biography um, by, of course, Manu Bhagwan. That's out by Penguin. You can get it. The link in the description. Thank you for being such a good person and joining me every week on this podcast. Appreciate it. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Manu Bhagwan. Manu, thank you so much for joining me on the episode today. It's a pleasure having you here. It's it's actually uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm Indian. You're Indian. I live in Bangalore in 2024. It's a very different Bangalore from when I grew up in the 90s. So there are so many things that contribute to a country's growth. And when the other day someone asked me, um, what makes you Indian? 
um, because there's so many things which are represented in popular media about being Indian, right? Whether it's your political ideology, whether it's your the number of languages you know, the food you eat, and the music you listen to, or the movies you watch. Um, so you, of course, study a lot of this in depth. So if we can go a little back and draw a comparison with present day, once India got its independence in the late 40s and 1940s, and there was a vision for this nation, which at that point was recovering from 200 plus years of colonial rule. If you have to look at that vision and compare it to where we are today, uh, what's the journey been like and has that vision come true? A big question to start. Um, okay, let's start with a couple of things. Um, I think that as resistance to the British colonial enterprise in the subcontinent rose, there were many competing visions for what India was, India was under the British, and what India could and should be uh, moving forward. Uh, so I think first we should establish that there have been in in modern history many competing visions along the way um uh over the course of the 20th century these began to intertwine into kind of a mainstream vision um and ultimately produced uh what um the scholar sunil kilnani has called the idea of india now the idea of india for him also draws historically on a series of things, but this ultimately is the core kind of principle. And it boils down to a series of things. There was a commitment to democracy. Uh, there was a, a vision of a more egalitarian society to uh, um, push back against historical hierarchies in the country, uh, in the region. Uh, there was a commitment to secularism, uh, and by that it meant that there would be uh, the freedom to worship as people saw fit uh, without um, privileging one community over another. And I think these were some of the core principles. And then there was an economic vision tied into that notion of egalitarianism, of socialism. Um, so these were some of the basic ideas, and then those got placed uh, into the Constitution. Um, and when I say it's important to recognize, even when I'm speaking here, that, the, again, there were many people with many disagreements over time. And I'm drawing in, say, for example, some of the ideas of Ambedkar, some of the ideas of Nehru, some of the ideas of Gandhi, um, and some of the uh, ideas of other folks involved uh, in this period. Um, so, I mean, I think that's what helped to create modern India as we know it um, from 1947 forward. I think that there were folks uh, in India at that time and uh, who, who, well, at that time, who felt that um, some aspects uh, of this were in contrast to their own visions. Um, and one of the things that some of these other communities wanted to do was privilege one community or, over another, or they felt that secularism for it to have meaning had to be deployed in certain kinds of ways that didn't harm a community. I mean, this is how they would interpret it. So the where we are today is quite different. I mean, I think that there's, um, I think the idea of socialism has been marginalized 
uh, a, a good bit uh, in favor of a of a of a certain idea of capitalism. Well, having said that, again, this uh, each thing we can sort of discuss in more detail. I mean, I, I think it's just important just to sort of set things up kind of quickly, um, uh, depending on what we mean. I, I think that there are still plenty of social welfare schemes, for example, that politicians across the board uh, are committed to and will and will and will push forward. But the but the idea, the word socialism, I think, has gone out of favor today. Um, with large segments of the population, at least, although there are plenty of people who still adhere to the idea, and I think uh, the the concept of secularism has been changing. I think that uh, for uh, well, I think that there's a notion of a uh, of a Hindu majoritarianism which has been ascendant in the country um, for uh, quite a while, at least the last decade or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in very manifest terms, we can trace some of this back to the 1980s and, and forward, the, the ascendancy, I mean. Um, and uh, I think that's probably in contrast to some of the founding visions as well. Not probably it is in contrast to, to the founding visions. So, I mean, I think uh, those are, those are uh, some places where there are distinctions. In terms, however, of India's place in the world, um, I think... Uh, there, there has been this idea of from the beginning of the world as one family, uh, or, or um, a sort of a commitment to multilateralism, a commitment to avoiding uh, too much dependency on any one power, and that much um, in terms of foreign policy, for example, has remained consistent. So maybe we can go into sort of more specifics. But as an opening answer, I'd sort of say that. Yeah, because um, yeah, I mean, I have some questions when it comes to um there's there's a lot of divide the moment you talk about the past 10 12 years um you would have the liberal saying it's been a an oppressive time for freedom of speech uh especially freedom of speech that doesn't suit the narrative of the government um but before we get there i want to understand this idea of socialism versus the more capitalistic individualistic approach uh, because when you look at the Indian mindset, which was um, beginning from the unit of the family to then the larger community within your group, and then, of course, that extends and spills over to bigger groups there, um, there's there these basic ideas, right, like of, um, you know, I wouldn't say honor, but do for your family. and But that I see, it seems to have changed because there was a lot of people who would live... Um, vicariously individually and individualistically but then the moment they would shame their family they would you know you had this typical hindi movie thing right where like oh my god he let us down kind of thing how can he come back to the village um and in that way of a collective versus now it seems or is it just my perception of what's going on or is it becoming um a lot more of the american model where you you um do it on your own go get go get it go like whole you know take life by the horns kind of feeling and as a result um is is the present day india conducive to that or is there still this old um sort of overarching sense of duty to family and this duty to community still guiding a lot of our progress and 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 the direction we're heading in Hmm. well i think um Maybe maybe to use your term, uh, Americanization, I think maybe it's fair to say that that 
some some version of quote unquote Americanization or a commitment to sort of uh, American notions of living at least. Um, it's I think sort of unmistakably more prevalent throughout at least India's major urban centers. Uh, so, um, you know, Bombay, Delhi, Bangalore, Chennai, I, I'd say, yes, you see these kinds of things for sure. Um, how much this extends beyond the major metros and into um, um, rural communities? I mean, I think that's a questionable. I think that um, undoubtedly there are many changes taking place throughout all levels of Indian society, undoubtedly. Um, and also we want to be careful about drawing too distinct a divide because there are communities who are outside of families, who are based outside of cities, but who's some members of whom are in metros um, and ultimately maybe even abroad. So, I mean, I, I think, um, um, you know, it, it, this isn't a hard and fast kind of thing uh, to just at all. Um, and perhaps it never was, but it certainly isn't anymore. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, I, I do think that there are distinctions. Uh, I think uh, social networks, social fabrics um, aren't, aren't exactly the same as what they used to be, but they continue to be relevant and important in India, even in metro centers. Mm -hmm. um, so I, 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 it's a, it's a, let, let me also come at this from a, one other angle though. Um, um, Ambedkar was critical of one particular aspect of um, Indian society, perhaps more than any other. It's what he called endogamy, which is the idea that we paid attention to our community and sort of keeping it our community um, through marriage networks. Uh, and he, he blamed that for caste discrimination for the, for the structure of caste and for discrimination that flowed from it in India. Um, and so it, perhaps it's also worth noting that some of the changes to the social networks, uh, a, a community, the ideas of community, um, maybe can be helping to phrase some of those things at one level. Uh, on the other hand, um, over-individualism, hyper-consumption, hyper uh, these kinds of things can also lead to more um, mm, aggressive and discriminatory patterns or or whatever, if it, if they're playing off of old older notions of uh, um, hierarchies or discrimination. I feel like I'm speaking very vaguely, um, so maybe we can be a bit more specific here and there, but um, I, I think uh, broadly speaking, I think there is um, a much greater desire in modern India to consume, uh, to spend. I think uh, salaries are much, much, much larger uh, yeah. than they were uh, previously. Uh, and so almost everywhere you go and at almost every level, there is a lot more spending. Some of this is just a lot more spending, a lot more lavish lifestyle. Um, and I, I think, you know, the top 50% of the country is undoubtedly living quite differently than they used to, top 50% economically. Um, how this is impacting small, medium businesses uh, or, or um, lower income or the poor, uh, I think that's in dispute. Um, and I think data here is vague. Uh, we don't have sort of reliable information on in these quarters. Uh, so I, 
um, I can't say anything definitively about it, but my my understanding is that it's not it doesn't play out exactly the same way there. Yeah, because when you, you know, again, this comes from again not data but just personal experience. You know, when um, when I was growing up, I had the um, opportunity to study in a, a convent, and then throughout continue in uh, with the English as my medium of education, and the aspirations, the sort of guiding principles, even the, I think the goals, if you want to call it, for that generation and my generation were very different, you know, because it was almost like there was, and I call this in one of my shows, it was living under a British hangover, right? You had these certain ideas to live up to, speak and read and um, a certain, at a certain standard of English to go abroad and kind of have this experience abroad, either educationally or spend time there. Um, but contrast that to today, there's um, people traveling, but a lot of people coming back and kind of setting up shop here. Uh, a lot of people are creating in their own language. And this whole idea which helped India during the outsourcing boom of we can speak English over China, where, and we have an advantage for um, these BPOs and call centers, now seems to be like, no, we, we do probably speak English, but we are going to express in our language. We're going to think in Hindi or think in Bengali or think in Kannada. And is that representative of progress and development? Or is it a reactionary movement to this whole uh, post-British era where people were kind of in some way living under this, this, this mantle of I need to be accepted by this international community? Uh, that's a deep question. I don't think I have an answer to that one. I think perhaps it's a bit of both. I mean, I think that there is unquestionably um, a rise in reactionaryism mm. uh, in the country, if, that, if that's what we want to term it. Uh, I, meaning that I think um, there is uh, there is this type of nationalism uh which is a rejection of anything perceived to be from the outside it's an anti-cosmopolitan nationalism mm. um i don't think that that particular attitude is particularly healthy um you know i think it's a it's a good thing cosmopolitanism is a good thing yeah uh, and so i think the rejection of all these anything that's perceived to be different or outside i think that's ultimately a dangerous road to go down. Um, uh, but uh, on the other hand, uh, com coming from a different perspective, I don't think that there's anything wrong at all uh, if the motivation is to say, well, this region, our community, our family, our this, uh, all these people over here historically have spoken this regional language or this regional dialect, and we were made to feel ashamed for thinking or speaking uh, um, in in this language, and now we want to say it's it's okay to do that. And yeah, I think that's good. I think yeah. that's fine, and I think, in fact, that can contribute towards cosmopolitanism in a sense, provided it doesn't necessarily it doesn't it doesn't go hand in hand with an outright rejection of English. So the way you framed it, which is yes, we speak English, but we can also speak these other things, and in fact, maybe it's okay if you learn some of these these languages. Uh, as well, I think that's that's okay. Um, that's you know my judgment of it, but I mean, the, if you're asking me to assess motivations, I would probably say 
that it's a bit of both. I mean, I, I think that there is this kind of rising nationalism, which is anti-cosmopolitan in nature. And I yeah. also think that there is a kind of a, 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 a parallel track, a, a kind of reassertion of uh, some aspects of, of identity, local identities, cultures and communities, which is to say, we don't want to lose all of that. We don't want it to be washed away. And we want it to be thought of on equal terms with some of the other kinds of things. And by the way, this isn't just against English. Yeah. In the South, this can be about Southern languages versus Hindi, for example. Or yeah, Bengali, that's what I was Bengali, going to come to. Hindi. Like In Bangalore, you see this. In Karnataka, you see this thing. Why should we speak Hindi? And that that's sort of what I was alluding to. You know, there's not just one example. There's so many examples, right, of my language over your language. And what does that end up doing? Uh, because it might be, okay, everyone's against English first, the public enemy number one, but then it sort of filters down saying, okay, we've won that battle, what's next, you know? Well, that's right. I mean, I think that's that, what you just said is putting your finger on, I think, the risk of anti-cosmopolitanism, which is mm. there's really no end to it because there there is no, the the inner and the outer or the, the, uh, the true, it, 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 there is no actual deep kernel. Like, you know, you can always keep peeling back a layer and saying, well, it's this and not that. And then you get rid of that and then it's this and then this breaks apart into a this and a that again and you just keep going ad infinitum and it ultimately is a, a very self-destructive kind of uh, philosophy in my view you know to talk about something more recent there was the uh, celebration and the fanfare and the huge media coverage of the ram janmabhoomi temple which was completed and was screened and i'm sure you watched the coverage i think um it was even covered on the moon, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> but uh, it was representative of certain things. And I'm coming again from a personal, um, not I'm not a politi politically motivated person trying to um, put you in a corner or any of that. But when I heard people around me speak about it, um, it was, of course, in some way, a huge celebration. And it also represents certain other themes which um, are being discussed in the country, right? And it represents a larger thing, which is um, you go along with it, and if you question it, it um, is either um, received with how dare you, or what are our other options, or you know how great our country's become as a result, or um, we were repressed for so many years. But it made me think uh, because you know, I had a I had a, a, a an author of history, historical fiction, Anant Nilakantan, talking about the Mahabharata and talking about the Ramayana, and I asked him about um, Hindu philosophy and these these epics and the Vedas and all these texts, and he talks about the open-minded nature of these texts and how the openness to interpretation is what makes it so wise and so timeless. Um, but when you get into the the conversation about the religious conflict around these kind of events, which is the temple versus the masjid and uh, whose property was it actually and going back in history, it seems like history is being weaponized in some way, politicized in some way. Um, and again, this, as a lay person, what, I don't know what to make of it, right? Is it a certain set of notions that we have to adhere to to be Indians? Um, 
And if we are not, are we going against the grain or, or are we not being good Indians in, in, in the new context of things? So it's, it's sorry if it's a bunch of thoughts or not really a specific question, but it seems to be the most recent um, kind of a landmark coverage in, 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 in the scheme of things. And I just don't know what to make of it for um, the, the, the country as we as we sit here today talking. I think that it's important to recognize that there are a couple of different uh, views and approaches to the issue, um, both in terms of uh, what's happened, uh, what is happening, and, and where this might be headed. Mm-hmm. Um, so first, um, I think we can take a scholarly assessment. Uh, we can go back to the work of A.K. Ramanujan, uh, for example, or Paula Richman, uh, or many others, who've talked about the plurality of the Ramayan tradition, that there are so many different narratives and tellings and uh, productions uh, in which uh, the Ramayana is beautiful because it exists in so many different ways for so many different people. Um, and um, the, the lack of staticness of the story uh, has been one of its greatest assets. That is in part why it has been so enduring and so meaningful to people throughout the subcontinent and indeed in many parts of the world. Uh, so the first is that we can take that uh, as one one important element to understand uh, and to assess uh, 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 the story and its and its meaning um, in India. Um, the second is that there is a narrative of what has a, a, hist- a history, a historical narrative and a political narrative of what has produced um, the current moment. Uh, and that involves um, a sequence of decisions, um, both contemporary and then it also understands, it also involves an understanding uh, of uh, a deeper past. Um, and in that, I think there are different things to unpack. Um, and then I think if we look at the more recent aspects of the history, I think we also have to acknowledge, and I think this is just a statement of fact, that um, in the lead up uh, to what led to the demolition of the Babri Masjid, uh, uh, that uh, uh, during that process, uh, there were episode. There was episodic violence all the way through, mm. um, and I think uh, it is. It is. Mm, it's really incumbent on everyone to a acknowledge that in, in fact these, this episodic violence occurred, and b. I mean, I I don't think any any episode, any instance in which this occurs, where violence occurs, uh, is is uh, uh, is something that should go unchecked. Um, violence unchecked, um, you know, it, it can be is very destructive and, and can lead society as a whole uh, to to very dark places. So I think we need to recognize that and and say uh, um, that uh, that was not a good thing. To the extent that violence of any kind targets particular members of community of a of a of a country and makes them feel less than. Um, that's also something particularly not very good, uh, particularly egregious, uh, and, and we should be very concerned and wary about that. I, I think the similarly, the, the demolition of the Babri Masjid as it took place was something 
that was not court ordered. It was not done in in kind of a uh, uh, it was not done um, in a way that was um, uh, under guidance. It was it was itself also an act of destruction. Uh, so we want to again. This is just a statement of fact. I don't think really that's, this is there's anything controversial or disputable in these things. So I mean, I think that that's also something to put out there and recognize. Um, and to be wary of. Now, though, that's that stuff. After all of this, it went through uh, court, uh, the courts and produced a Supreme Court ruling, and that led us uh, to the decision that a temple should be built hmm. in this location and that um, uh, the a, a new mosque should be built, built in a separate location. That is still yet to be built. Um, so... I think that there's a segment of the population, a large segment of the population, who looks at that and says, well, the Supreme Court ruled, this is in keeping with the ruling, yeah. um, and, uh, uh, you know, what's the next step? Um, and so um, there were people who took the moment of the building of the temple to say, let's turn the page. How do yeah. we move forward together? Um, and I, I think there were... Um, there were some in the leadership of the movement. Uh, there were some contemporary political leaders, and there were some members uh, of uh, the Muslim community who made it a point to make those kinds of statements. Um, now, while that was said there, um, outside of the sequence of, of the temple and the mosque to be built and so on, in other parts of the country, um, I think that there were people who were celebrating or who were taking this only as a first step and mm. that they're, they now see uh, opportunity to raise similar kinds of questions elsewhere and they don't see an end in sight. Um, and um, when, you, when you unleash something like that uh, or when people feel like it's okay to just go on infinitely, I think we again have to raise very serious questions about where that can lead to. Um, yeah. Ultimately, for me, that just comes back to the question of an anti-cosmopolitanism. The, the idea of trying to hunt for some comprehensive mythical past of purity, um, I think ultimately is a very annihilative uh, kind of um, path to go down. Um, annihilative, not just for the people set as the opposition, because I think that constantly changes until you bring it back right into the self and destroy the self at the same time, because I don't think that there is really any um, way to kind of determine that what the actual deep kernel of quote unquote purity might be. So, I mean, I think um, it's a, it's an important question. I think that there's a lot going on. I think that we look at it, we can look at it, that there's a scholarly assessment uh, I think that there's a uh, both a deep historical, a modern historical assessment, and then there's a matter of faith uh, for people, and then there's also sort of contemporary political questions. And I think uh, to deal with this comprehensively um, and 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 uh, and not to give it too short a shrift, we would have to unpack each of these four categories in in more much more detailed ways. Yeah, because you mentioned the point which I think can be again taken in two different directions, right? When you say turn the page, it um, could refer to a new beginning, right? Where 
We can use history to say this was conflict, there was injustice, there was a lot of violence, but we can be the future for that, put it to rest and start um, by turning the page. The second way is also the turning the page saying, let's undo these perceived wrongs to us, right? Take apart history, look at these nuggets which suit us, which uh, demonizes other groups or events in history, and then turn the page and go about setting it right, quote unquote. And that's dangerous, right? Because it's kind of bringing up stuff which um, contextually happened, but might not be, um, it, 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 I wouldn't say becomes petty, but it goes on a path of vengeance and, 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 and which doesn't end up well because it's like something that happened 500 years, why is the present population that is being attacked suffering for that, right? Um, and I think it's scary, the, the latter is quite scary, but um, India's always had this religious tension, right, compared to, um, someone says, look at Denmark or Sweden, and they seem to have, you know, the, the best track record when it comes to world's happiest countries. I don't know what who they're paying for that, but <laughs> they seem to be winning all the time. Um, but do you feel these are things that we need to put in the former context of turning the page, if we do it in a way collectively, um, acknowledging the diversity we have in our country with language, religion, um, and also the ability to kind of live together in a community of different faiths, different beliefs, if we can steer the ship in the right path, because clearly economically we are able to hold our head above water compared to so other countries in the subcontinent over the past five years, Sri Lanka having the economic collapse and um, Nepal having its issues, Bangladesh, Pakistan having their issues. Uh, if we can set down this path and steer the ship in the right direction, do you feel we can have a foreseeable future, say in the next 10 years, 15 years, maybe earlier, hopefully, where we are in some way able to get over this, um, his, this recent historical animosity and even forget about, not forget about, but kind of put to rest the Mughal past or the British past and all these injustices which did happen back then. But can we realize that carrying it forward isn't going to do anyone good? I think Shashi Tharoor said, um, you can forgive, but don't forget. And I think that's an apt statement in this context. Like, can we move on from here and have a nation that can kind of you know, provide for one plus billion people and uh, out of which a large percentage are still struggling economically trying to make ends meet. Um, so what can we expect going forward? Like, is it looking more filled with turmoil and divide or is the, is, is the roadmap looking where we can head in a direction where we're setting ourselves free? Well, I'm, first of all, let me, there's a couple of different things there. Let me start by saying I'm a historian. Mm. So I think that fundamental to understanding where we are at the moment, and before we can think about where we're headed next, um, although we're, all, we're always sort of heading next somewhere, but I think this is important to carry with us in informing our decisions about where to go, is grappling with the past. So I don't think we should just kind of brush it aside and say, well, it all happened, let's forget it. 
Um, many things have happened in the past, and I think a serious scholarly grappling with all of that scholarly to help us understand what actually happened, and then a meaningful public discussion so that we we have to come to terms with it. And the past, to be frank, is not all um, roses and rainbows. Uh, you know, it, 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 a lot of bad decisions and a lot of terrible actions have happened in the past. Yeah. We have to grapple with that. Um, and, but you have to grapple with it to acknowledge it and without blame. The people who did that are not us. The people yeah. who did it are not the people living today, but we are the products of that. And there are people who sort of, you know, that the, bear the impact or bear the lineage of those kinds of actions uh, that can move forward. And some of it can be collective. Um, and so uh, coming to terms with kind of collective pain, collective grief, that kind of thing, and, and acknowledging here and there that these various kinds of things have happened um, and boring down, not at a general level, but sort of getting into the details and understanding and coming to terms with it. I think that's what the goal of historians uh, is and should be. We we look at, examine different kinds of things, come to deeper understandings of it. And then as we find and uh, un unpack things that uh, uh, have, we sort of put it together and tell the bigger story, it sort of enters a, a different phase where um, public conversation about these things is imperative. Uh, and the public conversation is so that we can come to terms with it and, and understand it and then um, move, try to move forward. Now, I think if when the public conversation begins um, or when there is public conversation that is not informed by scholarship and rather by um, sort of armchair understandings or deeply held resentments, which have nothing to do with an actual understanding of the past. I don't think that's helpful at all. That's very dangerous. And if you mix the two up, that uh, resentment um, is what's driving an understanding of the past. That's also, you know, a sort of very risky kind of, not very risky, it's a very dangerous kind of thing to do. Yeah. And not at all what we're talking about, what I'm talking about here. Um, so, I mean, I think, um, let me give you one example, um, which doesn't have to do specifically with India, but yeah. we can we can read into it into India as well, yeah. which is that um, the the historic institution of slavery, um, which was a transnational institution mm. involving people from multiple continents, involved a triangular trade around the Atlantic Ocean, and it benefited many people peoples and countries in the West at the expense of many peoples uh, in, uh, uh, in in parts of Africa. Um, and so, and then their descendants um, who were forcibly um, enslaved uh, then uh, bore the consequences of those actions and descendants have borne the legacy of that. So one aspect of history is to grapple with this painful history and to come to terms with it. The other is, is there some way of redressing this particularly egregious historical wrong that raises certain kinds of questions about what actions might be okay, uh, like, like reparations? In the Indian context, the same question has come up about whether Great Britain, for example, owes India reparations uh, or whether you should just sort of say, well, it happened and let's acknowledge it. 
Um, I think uh, Shashi Tharoor famously had a debate. Uh, uh, I think it was at the Oxford Union, um, in which he was talking about. I think it was. I think he said it in this debate. And I, I believe he said it, but I think it was specific to this instance, um, where he said, "Look, it's really it's not about you know it can just be a penny. It, what we really want is just the apology, just acknowledge it." Um, and I think that that's uh, that's an assessment mm. that I think many people, not everyone, but many people hold. There are some people who believe in colonial restitution, that is, colonized territories owe some kind of restitution to colonized spaces. Um, I think again, that's a that's kind of a kind of public debate may be worth having, but I think um, uh, that's what I mean by grappling with it. How do you how do you sort of come to terms with it, but in a way that isn't necessarily going to have animus towards modern day Great Britain? You know, like you have to kind of come to terms with this and figure out a way to say, look, let's take responsibility for what happened, acknowledge that this was painful, also acknowledge that this was wrong, and acknowledge that we don't want it to happen again, neither to us nor really to anyone. Uh, and then that's those kinds of mm, judgments are are necessary for us then to figure out what's the way forward. Um, so that's what I mean uh, yeah. when I say uh, when you're asking where do we go from here. I mean I think if we look at these other two examples, um, I think that helps to put it in perspective. I think. The past is full of painful, terrible, and egregious wrongs. And there's no point in pretending like there isn't. Um, and we have to sort of figure out uh, like what those were and, and what's painful for people and, and how, do, how do we deal with that pain in a way that doesn't cast aspersions and blame either. I mean, it, it's more about let's figure this out. We, we, we are critical of what happened uh, and now we want to sort of make a value judgment about, um, we don't want that to happen again, so what do we do? And I also don't want to m make the mistake here of saying that everything that happened in India's past should be seen as something that was bad. That's not yeah. true either. There were many yeah. things that were good, many fantastic things that were good. Um, and so we want to also talk about some of, uh, like understand uh, where things went right and how they went right and, and where there was uh, uh, um, d developments, uh, things that we we want to we want to take note of. Um, for me, it all boils down to this. Um, uh, I think um, the overall question is how peoples who are who are very different uh, find ways of living together um, that takes recognition of and celebrates and affirms that diversity of, of living uh, without casting aspersions one or the other. Uh, I, I think that's the goal for me, um, uh, i.e. cosmopolitanism. And yeah. so the real question is how do we how do we get there? And it's a quest not just for India, but for all of the people of the world. We can't say the world is one family uh, and then uh, say, but only this member matters or only this this the, the beliefs of this member mean something it just doesn't doesn't make any sense and so um if if we're going to use um uh, Vas uh, 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 uh vasudeva as the basis for an explanation of a historical um subcontinental ethos 
and that we, as was just done at the G20, we're going to take that and then make that a contemporary aphorism and a contemporary principle for India's engagement with the peoples of the world. That is, the world is one family. Um, then I think that implies um, an adherence to the vision of cosmopolitanism. And therefore, what I just said is the only way forward. Yeah, because the armchair people, the ones you mentioned, and this was, by the way, well said, because I think coming from someone like you, uh, it needs to be heard, right? We need to understand it. We need to process the pain at the same time, not take nuggets and sort of to suit our ideology and suit our our vengeance and suit the, 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 the sense of wrong that we feel. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, there is a population in India, quite a big percentage that is vulnerable to manipulation and with the tools of technology like social media there seems to be there seem to be a lot more of these armchair uh individuals who pick and choose things they want to suit their agenda and their their anger and their wrong sense of wrong um using tools on social media whatsapp whatnot right um and as a result you know you have a lot more of these conversations being repeated in these you know echo chambers of you know people think and again being used on a larger scale to um, manipulate people's way of thinking about certain things and this is happening across the board whether it's India uh, within India across other countries and you see a lot more conflict so my, my question in a way is are these phases of turmoil conflict um, a natural occurrence in a nation's growth and journey of growth um, and does it what happens on the other side or is it a, a sign of decline and while we are in some way at the G20 you said working towards a global family is that just the messaging which people want to hear but a message that's hiding deeper cracks within within these nations um, I think there are always centrifugal and centripetal forces at work. We have to choose um, which one we want to su subscribe to more. Um, I think these are two opposing forces and trends. Um, and the ones that are like intent on dispersal and breaking things apart uh, and fracture, I think, um, for, for whatever their own purposes might be, uh, I think, to me, um, those are dangerous because historically, uh, those kinds of forces have led to dangerous moments of fracture, fissure, and ultimately to violent conflict. Avoiding violent conflict, I think, to me, is one of the primary goals. But let me go back to the first part of your question for a minute, uh, yeah. which is, I want to just clarify here that I think that we are all susceptible to forms of misinformation and manipulation mm. and that our susceptibility individually and collectively to this is only increasing with each passing day as technology continues to evolve at revolutionary paces yeah. where, you know, um, uh, the ability of art of AI, artificial intelligence, uh, to, and, um, uh, assisted technologies to create what we call deep fakes is only increasing. Um, and uh, it's going to be 
increasingly challenging uh, to distinguish between the real and the artificial, what's just concocted, what's just created. Um, you know, it, it, we can already do it, um, and it won't be very long before this is perfected. There'll be like fake video, fake audio, which is seamless and yeah. looks like it's historical footage and the audio sounds real. And, you know, it will be it will be done in ways that people will say, oh, look, we found this and it says this and therefore this yeah. is proof of and the whole thing is just totally fake. Yeah. Uh, and um, so what we need is a whole, you know, um, uh, we, we need a commitment to sort of getting ahead of this and figuring out ways to keep it in check. Um, I think misinformation, disinformation, uh, um, which is sort of the more active and directed application of misinformation, um, I, I, I think these are the scourges of our time. They're manipulative and for done for particular purposes. Um, now, I, I think there's also a distinction between people who get, the, the, there are people who create memes and um, uh, certain kinds of things on WhatsApp, and then they forward them. Yeah. And then there are people who receive them and think whatever they think about it and continue to forward it. And then the forwarding on WhatsApp, for example, generates a momentum of its own and keeps the, you know, keeps this stuff in the public, in a sort of public private domain, but then that, that is a campaign unto itself. Yeah. If the total amount of information being funneled into WhatsApp is a torrent, and then this just keeps, you know, you never can get ahead of it. That itself is a whole other kind of uh, set of risks involved with that. Yeah. To your last question about the latter part of your question, uh, which is, so what does this mean? You know, is this something that everyone goes through or is India in a particularly uh, um, questionable moment or, you know, does it, it, could it, I would say what we can clearly see um, today in the United States is that there is no like end point of security. That things that that institutions that we take for granted in the modern world are uh, not they are not as solid uh, and unshakable as many people had presumed for fifty years, yeah. um, and that it takes constant work to ensure that they that they stand up and that they remain standing. These are the institutions of modern democracies um, that they that they rely on a certain kind of public trust and campaigns of misinformation and disinformation erode that trust and if they erode trust they erode the basis of democracy and the basis of kind of modern politics uh, and so the folks engaged with this for whatever their short-term goals are uh, may think that this is going to lead them to a long-term victory. But ultimately, in my view, the undermining of any commitment to truth uh, is, as, as, I've, as I've said before, it, it cannot lead anywhere but uh, to a kind of a, a very destructive position that isn't just about uh, a destruction of perceived enemies. It is, and ultimately, 
can only be fundamentally self-destructive at the same time. Um, and so I don't think that the purveyors of this misinformation, disinformation campaigns have that in mind. Mm. I don't think that's their goal, but I, uh, I think it's important to talk about that that is the path that that stuff leads to. So and no, that, I wouldn't yeah. be sanguine about it. I wouldn't just say, oh yeah, this, you know, everything. I don't think it's okay to say, I don't think it's true to say everything will just be okay. I don't, it, that, no, I don't think that's true. Um, I think everything can be okay, but it will take active work to first put a check on misinformation and disinformation. Second, to figure out what is the basic or core ideas we really want. We can't talk, so you asked, you know, about, about, um, you know, what's said versus what's real, referring again to the world as one family idea. Um, and I think first, it's true that there can be a difference between rhetoric and reality. You say one thing, you do another. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, rhetoric can be a very important guiding light or guiding principle. So, um, if the gap between rhetoric and reality goes too far, you know, if it, if it continues to widen to a certain point, then one of two things can happen. You get people who are committed to the rhetoric who realize that the reality is not what they want. And there'll be a mass shift towards this side. Or the rhetoric and the reality are, are so far apart that the rhetoric evaporates and it's just the reality that's left. The question I would ask is, why this rhetoric if, if the reality is what the goal is? Why this rhetoric? And so it, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily seem to me uh, to be so, something, I, I, I don't think it's as straightforward an answer as, as some might assume. Um, I, I think the rhetoric is important, and I think it's the rhetoric, it's in the rhetoric where we can lay some hope. I mean, I think that there is um, at least a tacit understanding that that is necessary uh, for um, not just for things abstract like world peace or, or, or global harmony, which everyone likes to say that they want. But even if it was more about, um, you know, let let's make this one individual, this one place. Uh, solid, stable, and happy, or whatever it is, or grow it to a you know power, whatever it is that that people imagine it to be. Uh, I think it still requires this other thing to be true. You know, if if India is busy consumed with wars, fighting with all of its neighbors, or or large scale dangerous conflicts uh, with with some of its larger neighbors like China, uh, or you know, God forbid, gets drawn into some other kind of bigger conflict or yeah. if conflicts overtake everyone in the world like what's happening currently um yeah. in the middle east uh you know um it, what difference does economic growth numbers make yeah. what what difference does any of this make it will consume us and destroy us all so uh that reality i think ultimately is is what we're facing and that is why the there's importance in the ideal of the rhetoric. Um, and um, 
why I think there are some um, for whom that rhetoric is the basis for the vision of what they want to make real instead. Yeah, it's, you know, the scenario which is getting drawn in and eventually what's the point of all these numbers and these these benchmarks of progress when none of that matters. But it seems sometimes like the movements are so beyond the individual control and it seems that the forces at play are so big. Um, what can someone on an individual level do? What can I do? What can someone listening do to prepare him or herself to equip themselves for this future way of walking in, in some cases, sprinting towards? Um, I think every individual has a lot more power in their hands than they realize. Uh, I think uh, the first thing um, is to um, engage in critical reading and learning, be wary of forwarded messages, try to read uh, uh, and and, and um, have defense against misinformation, disinformation campaigns. The best way to do that is to be is to sort of question whatever you might read, whether you read it on WhatsApp or whether you read it on a on a news website, have a little healthy dose of skepticism. Yeah. That doesn't mean disbelieve everything on a news website and believe everything on WhatsApp. Um, it means, you know, look, there are there are levels of credibility. And um, if something is in a what we call credible news source, you don't have to take it at face value. You approach it with a, a certain level of skepticism. You ask some questions, you follow up, you read different, you know, sort of other kinds of things, and you kind of come to a cumulative judgment about whatever that might be as best as you can. Yeah. While also recognizing that that what we are doing when we do this is is in, is informing ourselves, but making lay judgments. Um, we're not necessarily experts in all of the things that we're reading. We don't have to be. And so at some level, you also trust the discussion of experts. This, for example, is particularly important in areas like medicine, vaccines, and so on. It's true. There's going to be um, disagreements amongst experts, and sometimes they won't know exactly which way to go. They're going to have that debate um, using their expertise. We're going to kind of keep ourselves informed of that debate uh, and, and sort of follow it along as best as we can. But ultimately, we have no, when we have to make our own choices for ourselves, by that one level, we have no choice but to say we have to go with the collective wisdom of, you know, the, of, uh, of where this is taking us. And, and if we feel uncomfortable, maybe we'll make a, our, our own individual choice, but we want to be careful about assuming that what we know from reading six things is more than what they know from reading 600 collectively, I, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's one thing I think that we can do. And I think that that's very important. Um, I think the other thing that we can do, and this is a very easy one, um, is we make judgments every day in how we approach other people. Every day, all day long, we're making judgments in how we approach other people. And the single most important thing each of us have in our hands is to do our best. And, and we don't always, we won't always succeed at this, but we can do our best to say, um, how do we? How can we make other people's lives, who we encounter today, better? Is it by, is it through a bit of kindness? Is it by um, listening? Uh, is it by, by making a joke and making feel making someone feel more at ease? Is it by lending a hand, uh, helping out? Is it by making a donation? What are the things that we can do? And what are the things also where we can maybe try to break down barriers? Are there people? Uh, who we encounter who are feeling isolated or marginalized for whatever reason, can we 
take that extra step and and make a move towards them so that they know that they don't that they aren't isolated that they don't have to feel that way um and this the repercussions of this just magnify um and the last thing i think that's important for us to do is we don't always have to stand silent when other people we know um decide to choose uh, different courses of action and choose to say or do um, things that maybe aren't so nice or healthy or productive. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean conflict, but it does sometimes mean saying, okay, well, I mean, I, I hear you saying that. I just want you to know I don't agree with that. Um, and figuring out, again, ways where you can have a productive conversation and you can um, respectfully disagree with people that you know while also not breaking. Um, I don't think the goal there is to break relationships as best as you can, as much as you can. And this is very, very hard. I know it feels even harder today, yeah. um, uh, perhaps than in the past. But these are the things that any individual can do. And that I think uh, is really incumbent upon those of us who really believe in um, a more hopeful vision of the future. This is the, this, these are the things that remain in our hands no matter what. And I think we can still actively pursue those. Good to hear that, you know, that there's some things we can do. And thanks for those, um, you know, th thanks for those uh, points of advice, which can help us. Um, Manu, before I, uh, we wind up today, you, of course, are an author and you've co-authored co books as well. You have a new one out. Unfortunately, it didn't reach me in time for me to read it before talking to you. But could you tell people about uh, the book who are listening right now? Can you tell them about what it, uh, what the subject matter is and what... Um, you aim to get out of it? Sure. Uh, well, I've uh, just written um, a biography of Vijay Lakshmi Pandit, uh, who um, I was amazed to discover was considered one of the two greatest women in the world in the 20th century, the other being Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, I think many Indians may know her as, at best, Nehru's sister, mm. uh, and they may know that she played a role at the United Nations. Um, they may know one or two small other things, but for the most part, she has been reduced today to a mere footnote uh, in history. People don't really know all that much about her other than what I just said. And, um, you know, she's, she sort of appears here and there in places. Um, and this isn't just true for the general population. This was true for me as well. Uh, as a historian, um, uh, up until um, uh, a little over a decade ago, um, and um, uh, this this is a true story, um, you know, I, I, I've been, I, I was in my current job, as a matter of fact, so I'd been in the profession for quite a while already. And a colleague of mine uh, here in New York walked into my office and presented me with a book that uh, they had just written and um, and handed it to me. And it was about America and uh, and world affairs. Mm -hmm. And uh, it handed it to me and thumped on it and said, this will be of particular interest to you. And I, I was very grateful. And I said, thank you. And I and I, um, of course, was interested in the topic generally, but I was a little confused about why it would be of particular interest to me mm -hmm. because uh, my area is a little bit different. So I kind of looked at him quizzically and asked, you know, 
well, uh, congratulations and thank you. And what exactly do you mean? And he goes, well, and he sort of pointed to it and he said, Madam Pandit, Madam Pandit. And um, I honestly had no idea what he was talking about. I was like, what, who? <laughs> and it, 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 I just didn't know what he was talking about. And then it took me like a, a bit of time to to finally register that he was he was referring to Vijay Lakshmi Pandit. And then even when I realized that I didn't know anything, I was like, what's she doing in here? And like, I, yeah. I didn't, I didn't have any idea like why this, why she was in there, what she was doing. And I was very, very confused. And it was really quite a mortifying, very embarrassing moment. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, gosh, I, I don't, I, here I am. I don't know any of this. And, um, you know, I think it, it reveals how important embarrassment as a, as a concept can be if we accept it with humility. Embarrassment is a sign that we don't know something yeah. at one level. And, uh, or, or, you know, whatever we, we, we do, it can be a sign that we just don't know something. We did something wrong because we don't know how to do it. Weakness. Yeah. 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 And I think that if we have the humility to accept that, look, what, this is an opportunity to learn how do what do, what don't I know? What do I, what do I need to know? And how do I move forward um, in a more productive way? I mean, and so I, I had to take it along those lines. I don't know anything and I, I need to learn something. So anyway, long story that grew into my last book, the peacemakers. I, I, I wound up using some of her papers and I, I learned a little bit about something and she wound up in, in that book. Um, so I, I finished a book called the peacemakers. I produced it. This was back in 2012 mm. and I moved on right. and I started moving on to a different project. I was working on that and I was sitting in my, uh, dining room and uh, I turned to my wife who was nearby just suddenly and I just kind of looked at her for a minute and she she kind of queried me what yes what are mm -hmm. you what, what are you looking at me for and I said you know I'm doing this project this new thing it's very interesting but I have a confession she said what's the confession I said you know if if I'm being really truthful what I really would rather be doing is to write a biography of Vijay Lakshmi Pandit, and what I and I would love to do it for Penguin. And the reason I felt that way was because when I had written about her in um, the Peacemakers, I was surprised by what I had learned. But I had felt that it was a very interesting story. But I'd only really touched. I thought there was a lot more. It was like the tip yeah. of the iceberg. There was a lot more to the story. So I told her this, and she just sort of nodded and sort of said, "Yes, okay, well, that sounds good." and that was the end of the conversation. And uh, there's, again, a true story. Um, not long thereafter, uh, a week or a couple of weeks later, um, I received a message out of the blue from Penguin, which said, hello, um, we were wondering if you would like to write a biography of Vijay Lakshmi Pandit for us. <laughs> and I took that as a great cosmic sign that that is, in fact, exactly what I was meant to do. And so I said yes, and uh, that's what led me to write um, this book. And um, it, it's been, a, it took me eight years, uh, five languages, over 40 archives, seven countries wow. uh, to put it together. And it's been, um, uh, it was a, a really remarkable journey. I, I learned a tremendous amount. And the most important thing that I learned is that uh, this is a woman who lived from 1900 to 1990, basically spanning the 20th century. Right. And so um, in telling her story, I was also telling the story of modern India, the making of modern India and of India in the world in the 20th century. 
And it's a story, once again, that I thought I knew very well. And I was like, well, I've been doing this a long time. And I, I, I know, I know what this, um, I, you know, I, I know how this unfolds. Uh, and so I was really quite stunned once again to kind of find how much not only did I not know, but that the story that seemed familiar to me looked very different as I retold it walking alongside her, mm. seeing it through her eyes. Um, and um, it wasn't just because the the person I was walking alongside was this this figure, Vijay Lakshmi Pandit, but it was also because uh, you it became apparent how different history can appear when um, this was an, one of the world's most important women. And she has basically been erased. She, you know, like her role, nobody, not only does nobody know, but like the question is, why does nobody know? Why, yeah. where, where did she go? What happened to her? Uh, and so it's a bit of a mystery that I try to unravel through the book um, and, and, and explain how this came to be and what exactly happened. And this is also about the erasure of women more broadly how achievements, great and small, uh, daily, routine, and extraordinary uh, are all sort of put into one uh, kind of, the same kind of bucket and, and tossed away. Uh, and so we, we miss, we've missed so much of the story. We continue to miss so much of the story by doing that. Um, and we haven't completely understood uh, what, what has happened. And so in that sense, my book is a corrective for all of that. Uh, and helps us to to um, to see things uh, through uh, through a new light. That's brilliant. I'm, I'm I'm just excited for your excitement about the journey and putting this together. Congratulations on putting it out, and I'll link uh, the book in the description of this episode. Um, Manu, it's been such a pleasure talking to you, and thanks for giving me perspective on certain areas which I was a little worried about, little concerned, confused about, and I'm sure people listening as well would be appreci are appreciative of the fact that you've shed light on certain issues from a scholarly way, also from a little cautious way and an unbiased way as much as possible. So I think overall, um, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, sharing your findings, sharing your opinions and perspective. Really appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. Appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it.